This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So tonight, uh, first and foremost, we are learning Le Ilunishmat Yecheskel Ben Avraham. We are also welcoming everyone to every woman to join us on our women's class on Thursdays at BJX, uh, 1601 Quentin Road, 8 p.m. Wow. Yeah, okay. So now we're getting a new a new series. Um, it's argumentatively like maybe this may be the most important series that I've done so far. Like it, it's it's ridiculous how important this is, and also how misunderstood this topic is as well uh, to to the larger audience. You, what people don't realize is is um, what I've tried to create since the since about maybe two years ago is is. When I started like certain series, I actually did it in a certain specific order. For example, I started off like with the divinity series. So a divinity series is where I speak about how do you prove that there is a God. Now, once you know that there is a God, how do you know which religion is right? Maybe there's other religions that are correct. And then once we figure out which religion is correct, in Judaism, uh, then we figure out, like, wait a minute, but now that we know that, that Judaism is the right one, how do we know that? And then we prove that. And then, but then we have all the rabbinic laws. Like maybe the rabbis changed authentic Judaism. So we go and we explain all these different categories and topics in the divinity series. Then after that, we spoke about the 13 principles of faith. This is the foundation of Judaism. You have to know, so now that you know that Judaism is real, now what is the foundation of Judaism? And now that you have the foundation of Judaism, this is really what comes afterwards. What comes afterwards is that, is, is emunah. Emunah bitachon. How do we, how do we, uh, relate, how do we live that in our daily lives and what effect that does to our lives? Now, in order to understand the importance of this, everyone, and, and I mean everyone without, without, you know, like excluding anybody, has certain questions in their lives. For example, you have people that ask questions like, what's the purpose of the life? What, what, what's the reason that I'm here? What's the meaning of the life? How should I live my life? Now that I'm living my life, I, you know, people have questions on like day-to-day things. Like, what should I do in certain scenarios? What should I do in certain circumstances? And these questions come up, and if they don't come up, they should come up, because this is something that you should think about. You know, constantly. Like, how are we supposed to live our lives? How are we supposed to deal with things that happen in our lives? But if we take it one step further, we have situations where, where every single person has things that, that are important to them. And whatever is important to you, let's call it chase. You chase after those things. So for example, let's say you have a person who the most important thing is money to this person. So what they do is they focus completely their life only about money. And the way that it works, so, so let's say if it's, a, if it's a man, so the man is constantly, you know, working around the clock. If it's a woman, she could also be working. Or if she's dating, she could be only looking for somebody who has a big bank account or looks like they have a big bank account. <laughs> Very big difference, obviously, between those two. But you have people that go and they chase after the pleasure, after happiness, after relationships, after desires. And everybody has their focus in their life. Now, what's very interesting is that not always what you want, what you chase, what you desire is what you achieve. Sometimes it's what you don't chase you achieve. And what your friend or your neighbor or your acquaintance, what they don't chase, they achieve. But what's interesting is that you wish you could swap. Like you want what they have, they want what you have. And you look at an example, let's say somebody is going and all they want in their life is just to get married. They want to go and they want to get married. And let's say they're, they're, you know, they're older and they tried and they couldn't do it. And then, but they have a lot of money. Then you have another person who has, Baruch Hashem, a large family. 
and all they want in their life is money. Like, all they care about is money, 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 money. And this person, all they care about is family. They have so much money, but they have no one to share it with. So when you look at these two opposite angles, here you have one person's desire that they didn't achieve, and here you have this person's desire that they didn't achieve, and really they all want what each other have. And the question that usually comes up is why? Why is it that way? It seems unfair. Why is it that he got it or she got it and I didn't? Why is it that they have what I want and I have what they want? It's really unfortunate. If we take it a step further, if you ask somebody, it's unfortunate only in one circumstance. Let's say you ask somebody who has a lot of money, would you give it all up for a family? They would say yes in a heartbeat. Let's say you ask somebody with a family, would you give it all up for money? I don't want to finish all that sentence. (laughs) There's other people that I spoke to. But the, you know, the questions really go on to even a more exact, you know, circumstantial situations. For example, on a day-to-day basis, somebody could wake up, they could have a stomachache, they could have a toothache, they could, their eye could be, you know, bothering them. And another day, everything could be perfect. And they're like, why? Why is this day so difficult? And why is that? You ever had it that one day, it's just like, whatever, go, go back. After a certain point in your day, you're like, oh, of course. You know, like, I'm not surprised anymore. Yeah, when are the aliens going to come and zap me up? Like, I'm like, oh, I'm ready for it. You know, and then you have another day where, like, everything you do is, like, amazing. And you're like, this is been a, a great day, very successful. And you ask, why? Why is it that way? The people usually that ask the question why are the people that have the most sufferings in their life. You never have a very successful person who has a very happy marriage, who has a very good family, who has everything going, learning to why, everything's amazing, never stops, you should, but unfortunately, most of the time, they don't stop and say, you know, like, why did God give me so much blessing? Like, how do I deserve this? You know, like, you, you, where do people ask the questions? When people go through sufferings in life, when people go through tribulations and go through troubles, all of a sudden that starts piquing their interest and starts asking questions. Which is, by the way, a step a little bit that you should think about. Like, you don't want God to send you the troubles. You don't want God to send you those reminders. Maybe start thinking about those questions before God sends you those questions that you should be asked. So, the answer to all these questions is really one word. Well, I guess it's two. Uh, it's emunah and bitachon. It's a different class of what's the difference between these two. But emunah, emunah really answers all life's problems, questions, issues that a person has to, you know, has to deal with. You, you think about it. Let's say somebody goes and they get kidnapped. And they're sitting over there and they're, they're like in chains, like, like, like beyond anybody's imagination. And they trying whatever they could to free themselves. And they don't realize that their key to all their answers, well, they're all trying to like rip the chains apart or like break their, I don't, there's a way, I don't know what it is, but like you break your wrist or your thumb so you could squeeze your hand out. They try all these different things of how to go and how to come out of the, uh, you know, out of the, out of the guards that they have. And what they don't realize is if they would just open their eyes and stop like, just relax for a second and focus, and they would see that there was a key in front of them the whole time. Everybody in life goes through troubles and issues. And if we stop for a second and say, there's a key that's sitting right in front of us our entire life. That key is emunah. Emunah is the key that answers all life's problems. Now, in order to understand the concept, the basis of the emunah, you have to know one thing, that there is a creator. Now, people ask me all the time, like, why are you so obsessed? obsessed with atheists, with atheism. Like, why are you always speaking about it? Just, like, move on. Like, because if you don't believe in God, then everything falls apart. Maybe it's also because of the people that I deal with. I don't know. But it, it's, it's something that, it's the beginning of everything. Because if, 
You don't believe in God, then there's nothing. You can't talk about Torah. You can't talk about you can't talk about emunah You can't talk about anything really, because everything based off one foundation that there is a God. So emunah also begins with one thing, and that is that there is a God. Now, what does it mean that there is a God? There is a God that went and created the entire universe. Not only did God create the entire universe, but He created every single iota of your existence, like every single issue and thing that you deal with is from God. Even things that you may think is your fault. Like everything that happens is from God. And not only that, God is always overlooking you. I was speaking to a, a Persian community and I asked if they know something, a terminology called, I think it's a, a, a helicopter parent. Yes. And they were like, everyone was like, yeah. I'm like, I guess Persian parents are like that. You know, like, I don't know. I, I'm not racist or anything, but whatever. You know, it's actually a good thing. So uh, we're, we're like, you have a parent that's like constantly like, when are you coming home? Who are you doing? You know, like what's going on? Who are you buying drugs? So like, oh, whatever it is, depending on the kid, right? Obviously. So like, you know, you have different things that the, the parent is like, con- like knows everything about the child. God is a helicopter God. God knows everything that's happening to you. You know, God is, oh, God is always on the phone, like, what, but you're not answering sometimes. That's the problem. You know, you're ignoring the phone call. But God is always like, what are you doing? Where are you going with? Who are you going out with? What's going on? How are you dressing? What are you learning? What are you listening to? So many things. What are you watching? So many things that are focusing. God is just like, is just constantly, constantly focusing on you. To explain this, there, there was once a, a king. This was a king that was very focused on the community. He wanted to know how his kingdom was 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 running. You think about a in a in a certain think about like a CEO. Let's say there's there's certain there's certain owners of businesses that what they do is that they hire a bunch of people and they don't want to know anything about it. Like just just do your thing. Then you know like I don't know who works for me. I don't know like what's going on. I don't care as long as the money is coming in. I am good. People that are smiling now, I know you work for those type of people. <laughs> then you have other people that they know everything that's going on with you. Uh, they'll come over to you. They could be, a, you know, like a, like a Fortune 500 company. doesn't matter. They know everything that goes on. How is it going? How is everything? They are very involved with the situation. This king was very involved in the situation. So he wanted to do, he didn't just sit in his castle and just, you know, you know, set out his decrees. He went and every so often he would go and he would visit every, every town and see how the people are doing. One time he visited this, this town and there was a beggar that was collecting money and going around. And he saw the king. The king was traveling through with the, you know, on the train, going through the, from, you know, from town to town. And the, the beggar was like awestruck. You know, like he always wondered, like, imagine this locomotive, like how awesome it will be. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about the Q train or the B train, right? I'm talking about like, like the serious trains, you know, where there was a dining section, you know, and there was a sleeping quarter. Maybe I'm talking to first class passengers only, but whatever it is, right? And then it was the, the cattle, right? You know, part where you know, obviously it's meant for humans that are cattle, whatever. Okay, so anyways, so you have this like huge, beautiful train, but the, you know, this is the air train one, right? So this is where the the hmm, it wouldn't be called air train one, train force one, right? Okay, is my mind working? So you have this this train running by the king, and it stops by sees this beggar. And the beggar is like drooling on the train. And the king goes and says, do you want to like join, uh, join the entourage? And, and, and he's like, yes, please. Yeah, you know, like, can I do it? And he's like, absolutely, you know, come on in. And the beggar just like, you know, goes on and he sits, you know, in, you know, in his seat over there. He's so excited. He's sitting over there. The train is moving so fast. He's never been something moving that so, so fast. And then after about an hour, he starts thinking. He's like, wait a minute. He says, the way that I survive is that I go from town to town. And I collect charity, and I collect money. And once I have the money that I'm able to go and you know uh, buy maybe some food, some shelter, whatever it is, 
So, but now I'm sitting on the train over here. How am I going to get food? How am I going to be able to survive? We could be days on this train, for all I know. I could die from starvation. And he starts like he starts panicking. So he runs over to the head guard. And says, "I need to speak to the king. I need to speak to the king right now." So the you know the guard you know figures it's an emergency, brings him straight into the king, and he goes over to the king and says, "You know, my dear king, I am so grateful. I'm so happy that you were able to you know you brought me onto this to this train to this to this amazing experience, but I I need to go off." And the king says, "Why do you need to go off?" And he says, you know, I didn't pack any provisions. I didn't pack any food. You know, usually, you know, like, if I would have known it, I would have packed in advance. I would have collected in advance. I know that I would have it. You know, in the olden days, when you go traveling, you, you don't check off a box that says glat kosher meal. You would have to go and bring whatever food that you want on the ship, on the, whatever the train. Because if not, you would not have any food to eat. So he says, I, I don't have anything to, you know, to, to survive with. So as he's going and as he's speaking to the king, Suddenly, there's a loudspeaker, right? There's somebody, ding dong. You know, I don't know if they did that, right? And uh, there was a British woman, somehow. She goes and says, you know, will everybody please make their way to the dining room and dinner, uh, lunch will be served. And uh, so as he's going and as he's complaining, as he's speaking about this to the, to the king, he's going and he's, he's, hey, stop this. Oh, he's going and he, all the all the uh, you know advisors that were sitting around the king started laughing. Here's this guy sweating. He's like so nervous. He's gonna die from starvation. And meanwhile, he didn't realize that if the king brought you on the ship, on the train, or whatever it was, the king is gonna take care of you. Like, don't worry about food. The last thing that you can do if you have you know the king or the president coming and be like, hey, listen, I need you. You know, come on Air Force One. You know, like I need. You're not gonna be like, well, I didn't pack any bags. Don't worry. You know, like the Secret Service will take care of you. Like it's the last thing that you need to worry about is about like how are you gonna go. They'll take care of you. So everyone started laughing, and then they went. And obviously, the key. You know, he sat there and he ate to his heart's. You know, to his heart's content. But really, we're like that the same way. God goes and invites us to His world. And he says, come, I want you, you're here for a reason, for a purpose. And we start nervous. How are we going to make money? How are we going to eat our next meal? How are we going to survive? Who are we going to marry? What are we going to do? And oh, we're, are, we're like so nervous about it. We come, we're like, God, what are you going to do? Be like, wait a minute. I invited you on my train, the world. It's like, don't you think I'm going to take care of you? Don't you think I'm going to handle all of your issues? You're on my train. You're on my ride. I got you. I will take care of you. And Muna has the ability to go. Because if you live your life without a Munah, then that's fine. You're by yourself. You're the, this, this like Rome passenger that just snuck on, you know, into the, the luggage situation over there and you're sitting over there. Yeah, who knows with it? But if you realize that God put you on this earth, that God gave you a reason for being here and God invited you to be here because you're here. That's obviously you're in this, this world is, by the way, is by invitation only. You can't like sign up and be like, yeah, you know, like, oh, ticket for one, please. 120 years. You know, I'll take it. Uh, you know, round trip, please. Not one way. <laughs> Um, so you go over there, well, sometimes you have a layover in a different places. It's a warm place, you get a tan. But, uh, you know, you always. So, in any case, you go over there and you think about it, like God invite, God will take care of you. He put you on this earth. The, but when we think about Emunah, we think about Bidachon, we have to understand of it from two aspects. So we always think about it like God, you know, God will heal us, God will save us, God will take care of us. We also have to think about it for a second that God actually put you in this situation as well. Like, just like God heals, God also strikes. Just like God makes rich, God also makes poor. Just God, like God heals someone, God makes someone sick. It, it all comes from one source and one source only. And the reason why this is important is that when, God forbid, somebody goes and gets in a tough situation, they have to think about it. Why 
did this happen? Why did this happen to me? Maybe there's something that I need to do. Maybe I'm in the wrong path. Maybe I'm in the wrong track. Maybe I have to change lanes. When there was once a, um, there was once a, a billionaire that was very invested in his family. But like, if somebody was able to figure out a way that they're somehow related, there are certain people that are like that, that you meet them and try to figure out how they are related to you. Be like, well, where are you from? Huh. Persia. Small place. Well, maybe we're related, right? I know in the Gorsky community, right? Everyone's practically related to everyone. Um, you, you think about it, it's a small, it's a huge community, but somehow everyone's related to everyone. But you, you think, all these things are sort of like all related. So everybody would try to go and somehow find a way to be related to this billionaire because he would take care of you. Now, why would he take care of you? Because when he had a, he had a child, and when his child was born, it was separated from him. And for the longest time, he was trying to you know, find this child, and he couldn't find the child. And he felt such as, as a loss that whatever, you know, whatever family that he had, he tried to go and he tried to like, you know, make up for it in a certain sense. That anything that you wanted, you were taking care of. You need money, you need business, you need home. Whatever it is that he could do, he will take care of it. Now imagine there was a guy who had a very difficult life. And you know, he's born an orphan, had no parents, had no money, nothing. And suddenly someone comes over to him, does a DNA, what is it, 23 and me? Is that what it is? Did I say it right? Okay. He does the DNA test and be like, are you, like, are you kidding me? You're the son of that, multi, that multi-billionaire who's looking and searching the entire world for his son. You're that son. You're like taking care for the rest of your life. You have nothing to worry about. Imagine the, the euphoria. Imagine the happiness. Imagine the serenity, the peacefulness that this person would have. This person would all of a sudden be like, well, there's nothing that I need to worry about. My father has been searching for me for the, his entire life. Like, he wants me so badly. He wants to shower me with, just look what he does to people that are not his children. So this is how we should think when we think about God. We are God's children. God takes care of everybody, the entire world. Imagine how much more so when we come home, we say, listen, God, we're listening to your Torah. We're doing your mate's fault. We're doing what you have to do. You know, you think God's not going to take care of you? There's a rule that if you do what's right, you don't get harmed, you don't get hurt. There was a famous story. The story was, was, I don't know, it was like all over the place. It was written in Rabbi David Asher's book on living in Munah. Was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think Rabbi Yol Gold built a thing on it, but maybe, I, maybe he didn't. The story that happened quite a few years ago, on Motseti Shabbat, there was a rabbi and his wife that rented a house in Lakewood for the summer. And while... Everybody knows it already. I can see it already. He <laughs> knows what I'm talking about. Look how, look how famous the story is. I just have to say the address. And people are like, yeah, we know this. Yeah, it was a good one. Um, yeah, I will. <laughs> so, um, so this rabbi lived in Lakewood. And the rabbi at, wakes, wakes up at 3.30 in the morning. And he wakes up with like a little bit of chest discomfort. Now, he's not sure. Usually, if anybody is familiar with the healthcare field, if you have chest discomfort, it could either be like something like crazy serious, like a heart attack, or it could be something like completely the other thing, like it's just indigestion or something like not serious at all. So he's like, I think he's talking to his wife, like, you know, I have a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of pain. Maybe I should, I don't know, should we call? You know, they decide they're going to call Hatsala. They're going to call them, but they say, don't put your sirens on, just, you know, like, just in case, just come check it in. So, the Rebbitson goes and says, fine, you know, let's call Atala. And she stops and be like, wait a minute, we're in Lakewood. I don't know what the number for Atala is. It's like, I have no idea. She runs to the phone. She figures she doesn't know what, and she sees on the phone, speed dial one, Atala. She's like, this is unbelievable. She's renting the home. She's not, it's not her house. Renting home for the summer. She goes, she 
uh, she hits speed dial, she speaks to the Hatala guy, and the Hatala the dispatcher, you know, they tells her, listen, I don't think it's an emergency. If you can, you have someone in the area, can you please send someone to check over my husband, has some sort of chest discomfort, no need to put on sirens, no need to make a little bit of a hectic thing, just, uh, just to double check. So, they said, fine, they'll place the call. 30 seconds later, there is a team of paramedics that show up at her door, without sirens, and they're carrying this like big, huge machine, you know, with them. And she's like, you know, like, what's going on over here? Like, you know, that's all you figure, like, one guy, you know, and a Honda pilot, whatever it is, you know, like, coming in, you know, or, you know, Honda Odyssey, depending on where you live, right? So you go, you're coming over there, and, you know, like, you know, like, just checking you with your, you know, with this blood pressure cuff and whatnot. And they cut, you know, they come in with a team of paramedics and this huge machine. And they come over there, and they start hooking him up, and they start assessing and they see that right then and there he's in the middle of a huge heart attack like a massive heart attack there is a certain artery that when it gets clogged when a person has a heart attack it's known as the widow maker widow maker why because people don't survive from that it's very hard to detect and very hard to come out of but they happen to have a specific machine that detected it and as they were they were actually like they were they were plugged into him and while they were they saw the heart attack and he, he went unconscious and they were able to immediately go and shock him and bring him back. And he was able, you know, he was brought back to, you know, Bokush and brought back to life. Obviously, he was, went and, you know, checked through it. The, the next day or the following, you know, days, the wife was thinking about it. Be like, wait a minute, like, how did this happen? And she thought it was right after Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av, there's very famous, the Chafetz Chaim Heritage Foundation, you know, videos that, you know, that everyone watches. And in there was a very, very particular message that, uh, you know, sort of like forgiving, a forgiving type of message. Like if someone hurts you and someone harms you, you know, forgive them. That night, so the, his situation happened 3.30 in the morning. 1.30 in the morning, the Rebetzin gets a message, text message. And in there, it's something that it could go really bad, like something that, that really hurt and it could really affect her and it could really, you know, cause some, some issues. And she decided because of the video that she watched, or because of the Chafetz Chaim Heritage Foundation video, she decided she's going to go and forgive this person. And later she was thinking about it. She's like, how is it that my husband got saved 30? It must be a merit of the, the forgiveness that I went and I had on this person at, at 1.30 in the morning, two hours prior to this incident. So she decides, like a good Jew, let me call the Chafetz Chaim Heritage Foundation and tell them, you know, that they helped save my husband's life. So she calls up the organization. There's a guy that answers. She says, by the way, and she tells him the story. And she's like, he's like, wait a minute, you're the, you're the house and, you know, like that. He's like, you don't know, you only know half the story. It's like, let me tell you the other side of the story. He says, the Hatzala guy that came to your house, he's my brother-in-law. He says, did you ever think about why they had a team of paramedics, you know, at 3.30 in the morning, 30 seconds away from your house? Like, what was going on? He says, let me tell you the other side of the story. He says, my brother-in-law got a phone call a day or two prior to that, that his son was in sleepaway camp in the summer, and he wasn't feeling well. So they brought him to a nearby clinic. It turned out that he had an infection, and it affected his heart. And they, the clinic wanted to go and send him to the nearest hospital, because they figured it was something serious and something that has to look at. So the, the father was a Tzala member, goes to this uh, to the clinic and says, do me a favor, fa- send me over your information, your diagnosis. I want to show it to my primary care physician, the, my son's doctor, and I want him to go and take a look at it. They go, they send over the information, it brings it to the doctor, and the doctor looks at it and says, wait a minute. He's like, this is something really serious. Don't just send it to some Catskill, nothing wrong with the Catskill, Mount, whatever, hospitals. He says, you got to send it to the Philadelphia Children's Hospital. So there's a high-end children's hospital there. That's where you got to go. So the father calls back and says, I want the, my child to be transported to the, you know, to the Philadelphia Children's Hospital. So 
the clinic goes and says, we're not, trans- we're not paying for that transport. He's like, we have a hospital right over here. Why should we schlep? It's about a four-hour drive. Why should we schlep four hours you know, to drive him when we have the hospital right over here? So the father makes a few phone calls. He says, you know what? I'm going to come. I'm going to transport him myself. He brings a, you know, a tele, you know, truck and does a transport. When the doctor, you know, when the father tells the doctor about this, the doctor says, listen, you're transporting your son. You have to have a team of paramedics with you because just in case, God forbid, something goes wrong. And you have to have a very specific machine that's very advanced that detects certain things in the heart, certain anomalies in the heart in case, God forbid, something goes wrong. So this is fine. He gets a machine. He gets a team of paramedics. And they drive from Lakewood to the Catskills, which is, I don't know, roughly like, let's say, three hours. And then they get to the Catskills, they drive from the Catskills to Philadelphia, roughly about four hours. And then, about 3.30 in the morning, they're on the way back from Philadelphia, back to Lakewood. Now, everybody on the bus, on the, on the ambulance, is exhausted. And they tell them, says, listen, you know, exit 89. Exit 89. Make sure you don't forget, we're so tired. Exit and like, I got it. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go and exit. Fine, you know, I'll do it. Obviously, it gets missed. He goes off at the next exit or the exit afterwards. And as he gets off the next exit afterwards, all of a sudden they get a phone call on the radios regarding this situation that goes on. And be like, wait a minute. He says, we missed the exit. The house is literally 30 seconds away. It must be from Shemai. It must be from God. Let's go. Let's drive up. So they have a team of paramedics at 3.30 in the morning right outside this rabbi's house, you know, with all this machine. He, they go up and they, they, they all come out over there with this entire machine and they go and they save his life. And they completely, and because of that, because of everything that happened, that's how he went and saved his life. The story doesn't end there. It gets even, it gets even better. That the, you know, the following, the following days, the owner of the house heard that her tenant that was renting, you know, the rabbi and the rabbitson had a situation. So she calls him up. Is everything okay? So the rabbitson goes and says, everything Baal Hashem is okay. I want to thank you. That, you know, I didn't have Atzal's number. And I saw on your, you know, speed dial, you had Atzal right over there. And she's like, she's like, you don't even, you don't even know half the story. Let me tell you the other half of the story. He says, we bought new phone systems for the entire house in, in Lakewood. But then I wanted to buy another new phone system for a house in the country. But it was, for some reason, it didn't work out. I couldn't go and buy the new phone system. So I figured what I'll do is, is I'll, detach all the new phones that I put up at the house in Lakewood. I'll bring it up to the country. And when I come back, I'll put my old, you know, another new phone system in there. Meanwhile, I took my old phones and I plugged them back into the Lakewood house. My new phones do not have the speed dial of Hatzala. Only my own folds have the, the, you know, the speed dial of Hatzala. So somehow, God made it for like a few months that I would not be able to buy a new phone system that I would be able to bring it to the country so that you would have the old phone system which would have that, you know, that number, the speed dial for Hatzala. But it doesn't sign this up over there. The son, <laughs> the son that they transported, it was no even hard issue. It was all false alarm. It was no even issue with that. So meaning what happened? That God orchestrated everything to hap- to, you know, to happen. That this rabbi had to go through something, but he's not going to go and not going to get harmed. Meaning that God controls every... If it's something that you need to go through, then you will go through. If something that you don't need to go through, you could be in the most suburban area. In whatever it is, God will send a team of paramedics with the most advanced equipment to go and save you. But again, you can have people that are in the hospital that God forbid go through a heart attack and they die and they, somehow it was missed. Why? Because everything happens directly from God. God oversees every single iota, every single thing that happens. Now, when we understand the, the concept of going through troubles in life, going through issues in life, this is known as, as uh, what people usually call it as kaparot. 
You know, you have a Kabbalah, there's certain tikkunim that a person has to go through. Meaning that if a person in their life has to go through a certain amount of sufferings to sort of cleanse themselves, cleanse their soul of problems that they may have had in this life, in previous life, not going to get into it. The importance of knowing about this is that when you know something, it's so much easier to deal with. If you think about it like this, let's say you have, um, let's say somebody has tooth pain. Tooth pain is very painful. One of the probably the most, like there's like childbirth and like tooth pain. I'm just like, guesstimating, right? Whatever. Like it's really painful, right? It's really, really painful, tooth pain. It's like incapacitating. Right. It's like you can't, like if you think about it, it's weird. You know, like you have a tiny little hole on your, in your tooth. Like you can't focus. Like your day is done or your year, whatever, depending on the person. Um, so when you go and when you, when you try to, to, you know, to think about like, you know, the tooth pain, it, it's so incapacitating that you can't do anything in life. You can't like do anything. But let's say you have a tooth pain, but it's while you're sitting and the dentist is, I don't want to get on the dentist. I don't know why they need a needle that's about six feet. I don't know if they're going into your soul through your gums for the, for, for the size of that needle. But let's say they're going over there, right? And they're using construction equipment to fix your tooth. And uh, it sounds like construction equipment also. Like for all you know, you have like a jackhammer. They're sitting over there like... And you're sitting over there like, is there any pain? No, it's nothing. You know, you have you drooling on one side. You have a dentist. You're going through the same exact pain. But you're sitting in front of a dentist. I don't know why they talk to you while you have six tubes in your mouth and a power drill going through your, you know, soul. But you know, how's life? How's everything? You know, like, you know, is everything okay? You know, like, you know, like, you're sitting over there, but you're going through pain. But can you handle it? You can handle it. You know, like, okay, fine. You ask for more, more of the good stuff. Um, but you're, you're able to handle But if you have the same exact level of pain and there's no dentist around, you're sitting at home, you're like crying, you're in bed, you're asking your neighbors for Percocet, hopefully not. I'm saying like you're going and you're like doing whatever it is that you could to alleviate the pain. Now the question is, the same exact level of pain, why is it easier to handle when you have a, you know, a guy with a mask and a drill doing it versus by, you're by yourself in the bed? In your own home, you're more comfortable. You're able to handle the pain much better when the dentist is on, and you know, when you're in a dentist's office, as opposed to when your own private bed. Why? Why is it easier to handle? The reason is, is because when you know that the dentist is causing you pain, but it's causing you pain, but it's really helping you. He's giving you, you know, fixing your cavity or doing a root canal, you know, right? We shouldn't know from these things. But when you're going through these things, whatever, anybody here going for dentistry? Okay, no? Okay. So when you're, when you're, when you think about it, like, it's okay to handle when you know that someone's fixing it. But if you're at your own bed and you're like, oh, well, when is this going to end? Like, I don't know. Is this really for the benefit of me? Like, like there's no dentist fixing my tooth. It's just like, just pain. It's just throbbing. I feel like there's, there, you know, there's a, you know, a little unicorn just like ramming his head, you know, in my brain. Like, you don't know what's going on. And you're, you think about it, like, why? Same exact pain. Because once you know that there's a reason and there's a purpose for your suffering, it's easier to handle. That is where Hamunah comes so important when you go through troubles and tribulation. Again, we should never know from suffering. But if God forbid God sends us some sort of suffering, if we realize that God is a dentist, that, in the nicest way possible, right? God is, is, is healing us 
through this suffering, well, all of a sudden it's easier to handle. It's easier to deal with. It's easier to understand. It's easier to cope. All of a sudden we live a happier life, even if our life isn't the most pleasant that we would want it. Even if we would want our friend's life and our friend will want our life, but we all of a sudden realize that there's a reason, there's a rhyme, there's a purpose for everything that happens over here that, oh, it's easier to deal with. Rabbi David Hoffman goes and brings down this mashal that one time there was a developer and this developer always used a certain builder. He figured, he, like, this builder was a person that he, he trusted for years and years. Any project, any building, any house that he developed, he would give it to this builder. And this built very, very loyal to each other, very, very close. After many, many years, the builder goes over to the developer and says, listen, my wife has been telling me you got to spend more time with the family, you got to spend more time with the kids. You know, I got to go, I got to spend some more time with the family. I wish I could spend more time over here, but I can't. I have to go and focus on the family. I'm retiring. So the developer goes and says, listen, you're my best contractor. You're like, I, I send you all the business. Like, I need you. And the, the builder is like, listen, I, I'm so grateful for all the panasada you've given me throughout the entire year. I'm forever grateful. But what can I tell you is like... I need to go, you know, I need to do me. I need to do my, my retirement, my family. That, you know, it's done. So the developer thinks for a second, and he's like, he's like, you know what? He's like, can you do me one more job? One final job. And the builder's like, listen, I'll ask my wife. You know, like, if it would be up to me, I would do it with a heartbeat. I really owe you a lot. I'm very grateful. Let me ask my wife. Calls his wife. His wife says, absolutely not. You should not be, you know, like, let's go. You're retired already. That's done. He goes to the, to the developer and says, listen, my wife said, no, but let me speak to her. Let me talk to her. Let me go. And he goes over to his wife and says, listen, I owe this guy so much. Like, he's done so much for me. He's asked me for one more job. Let me do one more job. And finally, she says, fine, you know what? One more job, but then retiring. And the guy says, yeah, I'm, you know, they already, they already ordered their condo in Florida on the golf course. They're already, he's already in retirement mode. Um, and if you've ever known, you know, like, if, if you're, like, in vacation mode and you have to work, it may or may not be your best work. Uh, whatever. Like, you figure it out to yourself. Usually, if you're, like, in, you know, vacation mode already, you're not like, uh, like, oh, what do I have to do again? Another this? You know, like, I, you know, like you're not there. So this person, he decided he's going to sign up. He's going to go to this, to this developer and do one more job. But, like, when he did the job, he's, he was already, you know, like, golfing. You know, like, he was already in a different, in a different world. So... He did the work, but the work really should have taken about a year. He finished about seven months. The roof really should have been straight. It was a little bit slanted, good for the water, whatever it is, you know what it is, right? The flooring, whatever, you know, it was like not the best job possible. You cut over here, cut over there. He just wanted to finish up over here. He's retiring. That's it. It's done. And finally, after seven months, he finishes like, that's it. I'm retiring, booking the next, you know, flight out to Florida. He goes over to the develop, to, to the developer, hands him the keys. He says, Kazakaba, oh, thank you for all your business. I'm out of here. The contractor takes the, the developer takes the keys and he says, thank you so much for the last job. He says, I have, you know, my final, you know, my parting gift for you, uh, you know, is, and he takes the keys out and he hands it back to the guy and he says, this is your house. My gift for you is this is your, this is your house. The guy's like, what? I mean, thank you so much. Uh, you know, like, I'm so forever grateful to you. The guy's like, if i known that I was building my own house, you know how much careful I would have been? I would have made sure to got only the best of the equipment. I made sure I would have got all the best materials. I would have put in the most advanced system possible. 
But only afterwards do we realize that we're building it for ourselves. This is the way that life works. God sends us to this world. God sends us tests. God sends us that we have to do mitzvot. And we think, you know, like, okay, God, I'll do it for you. Okay, fine. You're not going to be angry with me, so I'm going to have a good life. You know, fine. I'll listen to the Torah. I'll listen to mitzvot. I'll dress modestly. I'll learn Torah. I'll follow the way of the Torah and the mitzvot that I need to do. But if we only stop for a second and realize that God, at the end of the day, after 120, God is going to hand us the keys of everything that we built for ourselves. Be like, you didn't do anything for me. You did everything for you. Everything that was for you. And not only that, also the suffering that we go through. Every problem and issue that we go through is a kabbalah. Also depends on how we handle it, but it's a kabbalah. It's an atonement of our dealing with. People always ask, how come I was, you know, put in a certain family? How come I'm in a certain, you know, situation healthy-wise? How come I don't have panasa? How come my children? How come this? How come? How? All the questions come up. But if you have one answer, one word, emunah, if you realize that God, everything happens from God, if you realize that God orchestrates everything and God is building a mansion for you, but really, you're building your own mansion. And everything that you do, how you relate to every single thing that you do, how you go and you result in a certain test, are you going to take it on with happiness? Are you going to take it on with, with appreciation? Or are you going to start complaining? Are you going to start fetching? Are you going to start saying, why me? Why this? Why that? All these questions that come up all builds your house, depending on your the materials that you're going to build your mansion in the next world. This is what Emunah is. Rabbi Victor Miller goes and, and says that if you ask somebody, what would be more important? To give someone advice on the spiritual aspect of their life or the physical aspect on their life? What would be more important? So generally, especially if you're speaking to a rabbi, you'll say for sure spiritual. Spiritual most important thing. Physical, says Rabbi Victor Miller, no. You know what's the most important thing? In most cases, the most important advice that you could give somebody is the, for the physical well-being. And he explains why. He says that generally, you have you could, you could categorize things into three categories. Something that is a, a mitzvah, a good deed that you do. Something that is a bad deed, a, a sin, an avera, a bad thing that you do. Or something neutral. So you have good, bad, and neutral. But really, he says, when you think about it, there's no neutral. He says, and he brings this particular example. Whoever knows Rabbi Victor Miller was very, everything was very, very particular. He would take walks. He was very healthy. He was very, you know, conscious. One time his grandson walked in, uh, you know, in the kitchen and his head was underwater. And for like quite some time. Now his grandson, also a student of his, was sitting over there. You see the rabbi, long white beard, you know, sitting over there underwater. You know, you go, you know, you just sit and wait. 10 seconds go by, you know, 15 seconds, you know, when someone, it's like every second is like a year. And finally, after about 30 seconds, the rabbi picks his head out of the water and takes a deep breath. <gasps> takes a deep breath in. And his grandson has just like walked in. He's like, uh, you know, Zaidi, you know, grandpa, rabbi, what you doing? You know, like, what's going on? And the grandfather goes, and the grandfather, and I used to learn like a block away from his, from his shul in, in Mary Yeshiva, on our in Ocean, uh, in Ocean Parkway. So I used to see him walk down Ocean Parkway. He would take walks down Ocean Parkway. And, you know, and I remember, he would go with a little notepad. He would have a little notepad, jot down like his little thoughts. And he goes to tell his grandson, so one time, you know, I was walking down Ocean Parkway and with an acquaintance of mine. And the acquaintance was saying, you know, like, look at all this pollution that goes on. Look at all this air that we're breathing in, in New York City. Like, how many cars are driving down Ocean Parkway? I mean, it's nice. You have trees, but like all the cars that are driving down, you know, it's not all electric cars. You know, like, there's like all this air that you're breathing in. People that live in Brooklyn don't realize what air actually smells and tastes like because, you know, once you go to the country, you be like, wait a minute, what's this weird smell? But that's pure? Like, what does that mean? Like, where's the, you know, where's the pollution? You know, I need to get my pollution fix. Um, and... This acquaintance was telling me about Victor Miller 
Look, look at all this pollution. And Rabbi Gamal says, you know, like I, I started not appreciating the ear so much. So I came home, I filled the sink up to water, and I put my head underwater. What do you think about when your head is underwater? You don't think about what your business is. You don't think about the argument that you had with your spouse. You don't think about the issue. You think about one thing and one thing only. Air, 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 depending on how your blood is flowing to your brain, how fast it's going, right? And that's all you're thinking about. And then finally, after I felt like I couldn't hold myself anymore, I took my head out of the water and I took that first breath of air. And then when you take that first breath of air, it's like, oh, do you appreciate air when you can't have air? Now, when I go on Ocean Parkway, I'll appreciate it. That's the way Rabbi Victor Miller was. That he, like, he was so particular in everything that he, crazy, crazy tzaddik tamit chacham. So Rabbi Victor Miller goes and says, that, I needed that introduction to give you this, 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 this example that he gave. He says, let's say you finish eating a meal, and there is a piece of chocolate cake sitting in front of you. And you're like, you know what, let me have a piece of chocolate cake. And you start eating this chocolate cake. Now, is that chocolate cake, is that a mitzvah, or is that something wrong? Well, it depends. You know, chocolate cake is not always so healthy. So it's not good for your weight. It's not good for your, you know, for your health. So while you're eating it, it's a big problem. It's a It's a sin. But then, let's say, you go, and you're in a down mood. And the chocolate cake will lift, uplift your spirits. So all of a sudden, now it's a mitzvah. Now you need it. You know, you need the, you know again, I'm not giving therapeutic advice to anybody. But I'm saying, like, now you need it. But then, now that you eat a chocolate cake, what's going to happen a few hours later when you're going to weigh yourself on the scale? All of a sudden, it's going to depress you. So now it's an avera again. Oh, yeah. So what does Rabbi Victor Mel says? Nothing in this world is simple. <laughs> Nothing in this world is straightforward. But every, what do we learn from this? That everything correlates to the spiritual. Everything that you do in the physical world correlates to the spiritual world. You think you're doing something that's nothing related to it. Everything is related to the spiritual world. Everything. Every iota, everything that you do. Now, says Rabbi Victor Miller, and he goes and he says that if you go and if you are a happy person, you're, you're, you're having a good day, how's your spiritual service of God? Amazing, great. What happens if you're depressed, you're sad, you're down? All of a sudden your spiritual you know, service is down. So which means is depending on your mood, depending on everything that you are going through in that day, it affects your spiritual service. So when someone goes and asks you, is this better spiritual advice or physical advice? Really, physical advice is better. Why? Because physical advice is one that feeds the spiritual advice. You realize that we're on this earth for about 120 years. After you leave this earth, that's it. The way that you leave is the way that you stay. You can't change after you get into the next world. You can't be like, well, you know, like, I'm really a nicer person. If you are not a nicer person in this world, you're not going to be a nicer person in the next world. And again, whatever that, that, that means in itself. But you can't, everything that happens in the next world is all related to this world. So it all depends on your physical well-being. So which means is that there's no such thing as a neutral thing. Something is either going to be positive or it either is going to be, it is going to be negative. And Rabbi Victor Miller goes and says, some people think they learn the Chavot Al-Avot, they learn Mesilat, they learn Musaf Sefarim, they learn about Emunah, they think, okay, I'm learning for the next world. So Rabbi Victor Miller, you're not learning for the next world, you're learning for this world, you're learning for right here, right now. That's what you're learning for. And sometimes, what we need in order to have merit, to be able to get something in this world, sometimes when we have Emunah, that actually gives us the merit to get what we actually want. And I'll give you an example of this story. There was once a, a religious person that lived in Tel Aviv. Very, very... But this is a person that was such a... Had a munah on such a high level. Such a high level. That, you know, nothing bothered him. Everything was in God's hands. And he was in the business of, of uh, buttons. He would, he would uh, buy, you know, wholesale buttons and sell it for... She's talking about many, many years ago in Tel Aviv. And, um, and he would sell it, uh, you know, sell it to stores and, and different uh, distributors. So... He had seven children at one point. 
And he had enough money to put food on the table, but that's about it. Finally, you know, one day he had seven children, about two-bedroom apartment. And his wife comes in and says, listen, you know, the Tel Aviv is not so really good to, you know, the children are getting older. The children are getting sharper. They see what's going on in the street. It's not really so apropos. says, we need to move somewhere more, more religious for the children. So they decided the, most, the best place for them to go is Bnei Bak. Bnei Bak, a very religious place, good place to raise your children. So they decided they're going to move to Bnei Bak. But the problem is, is that how are they going to go and move to Tel Aviv? Bnei Bak, real estate is really high over there. It's very expensive. How are they going to go and then move to, uh, to Bnei Bak? So, but this person, this, this is the, the father, he said, listen, if this is what needs to be done, then it's what needs to be done. They go and they meet with a builder. And they, uh, the, you know, the builder gives them different, you know, different ideas and says, listen, there's a certain building that I'm building with. It's going to cost you X amount of money. If you want, you can put down a deposit and you could, uh, um, you know, put a, for, for an apartment. So the guy says, fine, not a problem. Sounds good. He goes and he calls and he had a few people that owed him money and he called everybody that he knew that owed him money and he gathered together 1500 lirot. And he took this and he put it as a down payment for the building that, for the apartment that he wanted in this, in this new building. And the, the builder said, fine, I'll take it. And then you have, you owe another balance of 6,000 lirot. Meaning that you could do it in a, you know, another four payments of, let's say, 1,500 uh, lirot each. So the guy says, fine, not a problem. They go, they sign a contract, and he starts uh, building. Meanwhile, the winter goes by, and the summer goes by. They're, they have enough money to put bread on the table, but they don't have any money to, like, put on the side to, you know, to, to put for this, you know, down payment for the rest of the house. So... After a certain period of time, by the way, this guy, nothing bothered him. Emunah Bitochan just lived his life regular. Finally, when the time came to like pay the full balance, like he didn't even have, he didn't do any payments, he said, he spoke to his wife, said, listen, we don't have any money to pay the full balance. So they said, what are we going to do? So there's nothing we do. We cancel the contract, we lose the deposit, whatever needs to be, it needs to be done. He goes and he meets with the, with the contractor. And he goes to the contractor, and the contractor goes and says, um, "No, I'm not. Uh, I'm not setting you. I'm not letting you out off this this agreement." He says, you, "We made an agreement. You have to make this agreement." But says, "I see you're, you know, a good family. I will make you a deal. Move into the building. Whenever you're able to pay me, pay me." This is fine. He says, "You know, like why? Like why are you doing this?" He says, "He says I build my apartment next to yours. I wanted good neighbors. I see you're good, upright people." Good children. I want good neighbors for my children. Says it's worth it for me to, you know, bite it a little bit and hold it a little bit until you, you, uh, you pay me off. So they said, fine. They went, they moved their kids to, uh, you know, to, to Bnebak. They put them in the best schools possible. The kids were sixty. Everybody was going great. However, they still didn't have any money to pay the rest of the, you know, the, you know, the, the bill for this, uh, for this, uh, for this apartment. Sometime goes by and suddenly his supplier that he would get all the buttons from calls him up and says, Calls him up, right? One of those things. And he calls him up and he says, um, I'm closing up, I'm retiring. I'm willing to sell you all my equipment. You're my best, uh, you know, buyer. So I'm willing to sell you all my equipment. And he sold it for like a crazy discount, 500 lirot. And this, this person heard about it. He's like, what? Are you kidding me? He's like, of course I want to buy it. He goes and he borrows a 500 lirot. He goes and he buys all this equipment from this, um, from this, from this, uh, button manufacturer. And he goes and he had an extra apartment. The apartment that he built in Bnebak was a builder, a bigger apartment. He had an extra room. He put this, all these machines in one room. And he showed it. He had seven children. He showed the children how to make it. And they were so excited. They loved it. And they started working after school. Before school, they started working, you know, creating, you know, like uh, building buttons for him. And meanwhile, in the beginning, obviously the buttons were not usable. But eventually, he had a little factory, a free, you know, China, a free factory, working on, you know, child labor. Complete, I mean, whatever, everything was completely free. And he would tell his friends, he'd be like, you know, it's unbelievable. He says, I have a factory, rent free. 
I don't have to pay the workers anything. It's unbelievable. I'm living the life over here. And, you know, word got out. And word got out to his main competition, the biggest competition. There's a kibbutz in Israel that manufacture buttons. And they hear that there's a huge manufacturing, you know how word gets out, right? There's a huge manufacturing company in Bnei Bak that has free workers. They don't pay any rent. They're going to corner their market. They're going to take over this. They figure the businessman in that, of that button man, which was much bigger than his, he says, I got to buy this guy out at all costs. He calls this guy up. He says, I want to buy you out. He says, wait a minute. I just bought this business. I'm going to buy it to sell it. Not interested. So he starts bringing up the money, you know, like for whatever he was offering. He kept on raising and raising the prices. Finally, he goes, the, the you know, the, this, this father of seven goes over to him and says, listen, so I owe my contractor 6000 they left over for my, for my, uh, you know, for my, for my bills that I need to pay for this apartment. You want it? I'll sell it to you for 6000 they left. The guy says, I'll buy it today. I'm going to be right there. He came with a moving truck that day. They sold it, and he went, and he paid everything off for the building. He built it. Within a few months, he had everything covered. Why? Because sometimes in Munah, the fact that you just have a Munah, you live a calm life, you do what you need to do, God will take care of you. But... This brings us to a little bit of a flip side in it. You know, many, I, I speak to many people, and this is very, very common. Regret. People who regret. Oh, the amount of pain and suffering that people go through with regret. By the way, this could go through, um, to be careful how I say this. Regret could be anything from, let's say, let's speak first nicely. Let's say somebody goes and, and will say, like, you know, like, Growing up, I could have went and invested in Apple and Microsoft. And, oh, I didn't invest in them. I was like, oh, who's going to buy a computer? You know, like, who needs computers? You know, like, uh, tablets, what are tablets? You know, like, you think about, like, and then, like, oh, if I would have just put my money in there, I would have been able to retire. Yeah, people that go on their regret be like, oh, if only I would have went and I would have married this person. You also have another side of the regret, which is a little bit more unfortunate. Oh, if I wouldn't have married this person, if only, if only I wouldn't have married this person, you know, regret goes and, and it, it destroys a person, but it goes even on a day-to-day basis. You go and you go shopping and you forgot to put in the, you know, the little ticket in the minimeter, you know, from the, on your car, and all of a sudden you get a ticket and be like, oh, if only I would have spent 25 cents, then I wouldn't have gotten the ticket. Regret overcomes, you know, our, you know, our lives. The, the should have, the could haves that we have. And we're not, handles all these issues. It's also when someone goes through a certain issue, it's not even, someone, you have, let's say, two people, each lose $100. They had $100 in their pocket, and they make the same amount of money. You have one person, doesn't sleep for a week. Be like, oh my God, I can't believe I lost 100 You have another person, bothers them for exactly 60 seconds, and then they move on. What happened? How come one person, it's not about how much money they have in the bank. It's not because you have people that are multi-billionaires that they don't tip somebody because, oh, no, no. It's a, you, you have somebody who has no money and they give the biggest tip possible. It's not about how much money you have in the bank. What is it? It's all about how you handle it. The truth is, the bottom line is, is how much emunah and bitachon that you have. And again, I'm not relating how much tip you give, that emunah, whatever. Everything's related to emunah and bitachon. But everything, the way that you handle every situation is all related to the emunah that you have. Now, in general, you have about Four different choices on how to live life. You could either have it in one that you're, you're, you're tense and nervous about everything that happens in your life. Either you're, you know, you're thinking like everything that happens is all in my hands. I'm going to be able to succeed or am I going to fail? It all depends on how much effort, how much ishtadlut. Little key word over here. How much ishtadlut that I'm going to put into it. Then you have somebody on level two. Level two is somebody with, with somebody who has severe anxiety. Like, the, the only way that they could manage their anxiety is only with other people's help. They need other people to help them. They need other people to speak to them. They need other people to deal with them. They need other issues that they have to, you know, handle. Other businesses have to go and help them. That's the only way they're going to survive. Then you have step three, which is goes a step above. So you have, like, 
tense and nervous, then you have severe anxiety, and then you have one step after that, which is depression, meaning that nobody could help me. I'm done. Like, there's no hope for me. There's nothing that could be done. That's step. Then you have step four. Step four is somebody who lives life with complete calm and tranquility and serenity and just like peacefulness, menuchat nefesh that you have, you know, just like joy and happiness in life. Says the Chovot al-Vavot in the, in the introduction to Shah B'dachon, says that it is impossible for a person to be worry-free. Again, it is impossible for a person to be worry-free uh, without trusting in Hashem, without trusting in God. You want to know the success, the secret for success, for a worry-free life, for a happy life? It's one word, it's emunah. That is when you realize that every, that is the secret to your happiness, the secret to your success, the secret to everything in your life that you're searching for is emunah. The Chabot HaVavot goes and brings down five benefits. And we'll be done in uh, a few minutes. The Chabot HaVavot brings down uh, five benefits for, uh, for Emunah. Number one, you are free from all worries. When you learn Emunah, you don't have to take pills, you don't have to drink alcohol, you don't have to take drugs, you don't have to do anything. You're like, you're, you're like soaring through the clouds at all times in a legal high. Like you're in like, you could drive while high in Emunah. Like it's, it's okay, like you're able to do that. Like, no, that's number one, you're free from worry. Number two, you're not dependent on other people. Many people, unfortunately, well, they have to make sure that the boss is happy and they make sure that this is happy. They're always focused on other people. And again, it's good to make sure that other people are happy, but your focus is to make sure that God is happy. You know, you have so many people that they care about what other people, but what God says doesn't matter. Shabbat, nah, it doesn't matter. Tzniot doesn't matter. You know, Alachot doesn't matter. Oh, well, my boss, I have to, you know, I wish Talut. Come on, Rabbi, I have to do a Talut. But like they do, the wrong, they focus on the wrong things in life. They're not dependent on other people. Number, that's number two. Number three, they're able to serve God, they're able to serve Hashem without any distraction. Number four, they're going to have happiness in their life. By the way, number four itself should be just something that should sell you. Happiness in life is, un, like, that's what everyone strives for. Number five, they're not influenced by money, which is very important. The Midrash in Shemot goes and brings down that when in the darkness in Egypt, in the Makat Choshech, it was known, how, how did the Midrash go and explain the darkness? It was known as a dinar zahab. It's a, it's a, it's a currency. It's a coin, the most highest value coin in Egypt during that time. Now, why did they use a term to describe darkness with money? Like thick, like, like, like this money. Like, why did they have to use that? The answer is because money blinds you. Money has the ability to go and make people's eyes dark, make people's lives dark. The, our entire life, we're, we're marketing is such a strong impact in our life that it tells us what we need. It tells us how we're going to be happy. It tells us, you know, you're only going to be happy if you go and you get a degree. You're only going to be happy if you're going to make money. You're going to be happy if you're going to have this type of situation. You're only happy if you have, you're only happy if you have this phone. You're only happy if you have this car. We're constantly bombarded with how we are need to, we need to live our lives. This is, people are trying to constantly sell us things. The goal of people's lives becomes sucked into this and be like, well, maybe it's true. Maybe this is what I need to be happy. So they get involved, let's say, in business. So what happens in business? You have somebody that's completely involved in business that his entire life is focused on business. That even while he's in a trip with his family, he's on his phone the whole time. He's going and he's trying to you know, make more deals even while he's on vacation. He's sleeping, he's dreaming about his business or she's dreaming about their work, whatever it is. They're constantly focused and be like, wait a minute, why are you focused on... Because this is what people are telling you. This is what people are selling you. Money blinds you to what you really need to do. That's why the Midrash goes and uses the Dinal Zahav as an explanation of how thick the plague of darkness was. I want to finish off with one final story that... The, this is written by Rabbi David Asher brings this down in his book Living in Munam which by the way I'll say this a lot during the series very very read it do it just do it just, let's live it out. just do it the Allah Chaim Pastor Beshalach says like this that if someone needs any help from God 
and they see that they're not bringing it, an act of misirut nefesh, an act of self-sacrifice is able to go and tip the scales to be able to get you what you want in your life. And he goes and brings the story from Rav Chaim Zayad from Yeshivat Nachlat Shlomo in Bnei Brak. That this rabbi had, um, Rav Zayad had a student that was 22 years old that had a brain tumor. And this student was sent to France for treatment and they weren't able to go and, and heal him. And the family tried whatever they could to go and say, it's a 22-year-old guy, he's such a young guy. They tried whatever they could to go and save him. And they found out that there is a certain doctor in America by the name of Professor Rich. And uh, that was his name, giving you exactly that. Um, and he had a reputation for healing these type of situations. But in this particular situation, insurance wouldn't cover it. And he went, they sent him all the documents over, and he says, I would be able to go and operate on this. But the operation cost $130,000. This is a story that's going back quite a few years. And, uh, you know, they went and they tried to call any, all, you know, all the organizations. No one would be able to upfront that cost of $130,000. Furthermore, the patient, which was this 22-year-old boy, he was very sick. He wouldn't be able to fly to America. They would have to fly the doctor out from America to Israel to operate. And the doctor charged another $30,000 for that, you know, for that fee as well. So they figured whatever they tried, they couldn't, they could, nothing was working. All doors were closed. One day, the rabbi was very, very involved in this, in this situation. He's trying to make the phone calls, trying to, you know, help this boy. One day, the rabbi gets a phone call from this, per, from this boy's sister, a, a woman by the name of Michal Abetov. And she calls up. This is the boy Uriel. The boy's name is Uriel. The sister calls him up and says, "Listen, Rabbi, make the you know order the procedure. We're going to cover the expenses." And be like, "Wait a minute, how are you going to cover the expenses?" He knows that you know your husband is a call guy. He learns he learns all day. He learns so high. He's not making money. Like where's where's he going to get one hundred thirty thousand? They said they have a house in Bechemesh. They're putting the house on the market. And they're putting whatever the money comes, you know, whatever they get from it, it's going to this expense. And in fact, their house is worth, you know, a lot more money than $130,000. But they wanted the money quick. They're putting it at a discount price. Whoever gets to pay cash, whoever gets to close quickly, gets the apartment. So they put it at 130000 So the rabbi goes and says, wait a minute. He says, are you sure this is okay? You have six children. You're sitting and you have an apartment. Like, what are you going to do? He says, he says, we can't give up. He says, we're a family. We love our brother. We can't give up. We're doing whatever we can. We spoke to my husband. This is what we're doing. As much as the rabbi tried to go and convince them out of it, they would not do it. So the rabbi said, fine. He calls the, prof- the professor, calls the doctor, says, we're, we want to schedule the, you know, the appointment. Meanwhile, they got the hundred, he still needed 30,000, you know, for the, for the transportation. 30,000 he could raise. He called all the students. And he says each student should try to go and commit themselves to a thousand shekel. To go and raise. And how are they going to go? Go house to house. Go whatever it is that you need to do. So a bunch of students one night went. They took a bunch of cabs. And they went from house to house, you know, to go and, and raise money for this, for their, for their fellow, you know, student to go to have this operation. And one night after they finish, one group of students, after they finish collecting in a certain cab, the cab driver goes over to them and says, listen, he says, you know, there's a guy who I picked up a short while ago, and there's a bag over here. Um, can you drop it off at, you know, at a certain location? And when someone says something like very, like there's a bag in my trunk, you know, that I need to drop off at a certain location, they're like, wait, something's like off over here. Like, is this legal? Like, what's going on? He's like, no, it's completely, it's like, you know, and they're like, listen, we can't make the decision. We're here on behalf of our rabbi. Let's call a rabbi. So they call the rabbi and the rabbi says, sounds fishy. Don't do it. So the cab driver is hearing the conversation. He says, can I speak to the rabbi? Can I, I'll bring you guys back to the yeshiva. Let me speak to the rabbi. Let me explain to, you know, the situation of what's going on. This is fine, whatever it is. You know, if you want to come when we're coming in, you could go speak to the rabbi. He goes over. They drop off the boys in front of the yeshiva. The rabbi, they, they mention to the rabbi to come out. The rabbi comes out. 
And the taxi driver goes and says, listen, he says, I would really drop it off myself. I know where, the, where this person is staying, but I feel so bad. It was so long ago, it was so many hours ago, that I, you know, like it's so much time has elapsed that I felt bad going and returning this, you know, this object back to this person. And I just feel guilty. Can you go and get one of your students? I'll drive them. It's just returning a lost item. So the rabbi says, well, I need to see what's in the bag. So he goes and he opens a bag and he sees a bunch of tools. And he looks at the name tag on the bag over there, Dr. Professor Rich. And the rabbi's like, what? And he turns all white. And he's like, we'll ta- yes, we'll take care of this. You're going to take me, to the, take me to his. He calls up the doctor. And he says, meet me in your lobby in your hotel room in 10 minutes. They go. And the, the doctor comes down over there. And there the rabbi is sitting there with his bag. And the, now this is the turn where the doctor turns all white. He's like, where did you find my bag? He says, I, I was going crazy for hours. I was looking. I was calling. I didn't know what I did, where, I, where my bag went. He says, I wouldn't be able to do anything about operation without this bag. And he says, and he goes and he starts explaining, you don't understand. He says, I had a bunch of students go and raise money to be able to have this operation. And he's like, what do you mean raise money? He's like, what's going on? And he started explaining to him. He says, you don't know, you know what's going on with the, with the back end of the story. He says, you know, the, there was a sister that went and they didn't have money for this operation. She went and she put her house on the market. She sold her house for a discounted price for $130,000 so that you'd be able to have this operation. But we were still short $30,000. So I sent my students to go and collect money. In the cab of the students that were going and driving from house to house to go to get the money, who was, where was your bag? Was bag was right there. And the professor, the doctor was so moved by it, he says, you know what? He says, you know, this bag is worth in itself about $40,000 of, of, of equipment. But really, it's more than that. I designed all this equipment myself. I'm the only one who does these operations. It took me, you know, years and years of, 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 of like, you know, research and, 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 and and development and how to go and, and bring about these things it's worth it so much to me and when he heard the story about what the sister said he says listen he says this operation is on the house and he says you don't have to pay for anything this is all on the house so all of a sudden you know the sister gets a phone call and he says she, says, she sold the house already she saw, there's some guy went and said for $130,000 a house on Bechemesh done where do I sign he went and he signed it and he bought it so she couldn't get she now they had they had $130,000 back in their, in their account but they had nowhere to live so the, the sister was going to, you know, husband said, listen, we always want to live in Yerushalayim. Let's go look in Yerushalayim. So they go meet with some sort of, uh, you know, broker. They're going from house to, meanwhile, as they're walking through the streets of Yerushalayim, they see this beautiful five-bedroom house. And they go in and they start looking in over there. The owner's over there. There was a for sale sign. So they, they saw the owner. They speak, were speaking to the owner. And they were like, this is like perfect for what, the perfect area, perfect size, everything that they needed. So they go to the owner and they say to the owner, um, how much are you asking for this? So he said he's asking $310,000. Scramble the letters. Well, they had 130. It's like, oh, wait, we have less than half. He's like, what? You have less than half? Why are you wasting my time? It's a house. Where are you going to find a house for 130,000? It's talking about years ago. Now you can't find for 300,000. But like, you know, so long ago, they were going and they say, you know, like, 300, you know, 130,000 dollars, where are you going to find a house? And the sister, you know, the, this, this woman who was going over there says, listen, he says, let me tell you the story of how we even came up there. And she says, you know, my, I had a, you know, I had a brother and my brother was sick and I had to go and, and, and he's like, wait a minute. And that's saying, he's like, he's like, you're the, you're the sister? And she's like, wait, you know the story? He's like, I'm the cab driver. He's like, I'm the one who was there. And he says, my, I just got an inheritance from my aunt. And I'm moving. That's why I'm moving. He says, you know what? From everything that happened, pay whatever it is that you have. The story that's written down. It's brought down. This is a true story. And she goes and she buys. She gets All of a sudden, she gets $130,000. She puts down for a house that's worth more than double that. You know, for, in Yerushalayim, she went, when you, sometimes when we go through life, and we, 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 we're not sure what to do. 
When we do what we need to do from God, God will take care of us. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't see it. Immediately. But ultimately, we will only, only gain from that. That is the benefit of living your life with Emunah. Living your life with Bitachon. Living your life knowing that there is God that is controlling everything. Living your life that there's a rhyme and a reason, there's a purpose for everything that happens in your life. You know how happy you'll be? Nothing can turn you down. Nothing can make you suffer. Nothing can break your spirit. But, how do we get to that level? How do we get to that level? And that's why, you know, when I was thinking about, about structuring this, this series and, and how to go about doing it, it's not only about the information that you will get from these type of classes. You have to actually implement this in your day-to-day lives. And that's why this series I plan on doing very differently than I did for you know, the other series. I want to you know, delve in a lot of topics. But not only that, but what I figured with, with the most important, what brings it home is stories. Stories really bring it home. Really, but the goal is to not only intellectually think about that there's a munah, not only to actually intellectually realize that there's bitachon, that there's God, but to bring it home to your heart, bring it home to live your daily life. So we're going to bezat Hashem. This is why my goal is, with God's help, to be able to go and present this topic in a way that not only to just give you the information, but to give you the information in a way that's going to be instilled in your heart. That you, it's sort of like an exercise that you have to work in a daily, daily. You know, so bezat Hashem. The goal is to have this, you know, like a, a long series than the, than the shorter one. With that being said, I have to do one final announcement that um, a few weeks ago, we made a little bit of announcement about uh, an organization called Daily Giving. Dailygiving.org. This is an organization that what they do is, and by the way, it's such an amazing organization that I was like, why couldn't I think about that? Like that's, so like I, I promote it with such like, like it's so amazing because what they do is, forever is not familiar with it, is that they go and they're able, and they give a dollar a day, you, you give a dollar a day and they give that charity to, to, you know, that's Taka to a different charity every single day. So, What's the beauty of this? Is that there's so many organizations that you want to be involved in. There's so many organizations that you want to be, you know, you're like connected to. Like it's awesome. But like you can't always go and give it. This is like sort of having like your stockbroker in the spiritual world. You're about like, okay, invest me my money in a bunch of organizations. You like do that. And every month what you do is you give them like a $30. It's like $31 because you pay a little bit for the, um, you know, for the credit card fees. So every day you give them a dollar a day and they take that and they give it to a different organization every single day. I spoke about this a few weeks ago, I think it was. And they, they, they messaged back me that Baruch Hashem from that class, we had a large amount of people that signed up. I think close to, well? It's 980. Nine eighty. I think when we said it last time, it was about $100 or something. So we had about close to 40 people sign up from that class. And what's, what's, what was the most fascinating is where he told me where these people signed up from. You had people from Austria, Rome. I'm reading directly what he sent me. Austria, Rome, Philippines, New Zealand, Mexico, England, and throughout the entire U.S. Where you had people that go, that they listen, yeah, from the, they look, and they went, and they, they heard this. But the beauty, beautiful part is, is that where I give credit for these people, is that we all get inspired. We all hear things that, we, yeah, we want to do. But how many people go and actually go and do it? How many people go and be like, yeah, let me implement this. This is so important for them. We're not topic because you listen to this topic. How many people are going to go and implement it in their daily lives? It's nice. You heard some nice stories. Maybe it was entertaining. Maybe you had some, what is it, pizza today? Pizza today. You had some, some, some food. And then you move. Or do you implement it in your life? You have some people, they hear something and be like, wait a minute. I want to capitalize on that. This is an opportunity I want to do. You have 40 people that went and they decided from all over the world that they decided they're going to go and they're going to capitalize on this mitzvah of giving tzedakah every single day to a different organization. So I recommend 
every single one of each and every single one of you, whoever listens, whoever is here, to think about this. You have an ability, it doesn't cost a lot, a dollar a day where you're able to go and be a part of a bigger picture, be a part of a cloud where you're able to go and donate to different organizations, organizations so anywhere from, from Eitan, from Infertility, to Torah, anytime to go and give spread Torah. You have everything. You, you know, give your regular places that you give to as well. But here you have the ability to touch people, to touch like organizations. When is the last time that you gave an organization that, that saves Jewish families that got stuck in Arab territories? When was the last time that you helped orphans get married? Like here you have a, a, a organization that you give money and they go and they, they're your stockbrokers. They're going and they're, sa- they're giving you dividends that you don't even know about. That's how amazing it is. So I strongly recommend that not only that you go and look into this organization, dailygiving.org. Um, that is da- dailygiving.org, very simple. Um, but giving, giving, dailygiving.org. Um, very, very important to, um, to look into it. But also, whenever you go to any Torah class, whenever you read any Torah book, what is it that you're going to take out in, in, in your life? There are some people that they go and they leave a class gaining something every single class. There's some people that don't. For that, for the person that takes away, succeeded and, and the, the class was a success and it was worth it. For somebody that didn't, it was gone. The series that we're Bezalat Hashem with God's help going to go and try to accomplish is going to implement it into your daily lives. However, you could listen to it and it won't change your lives one bit. But you could listen to it and implement it and feel it and change it and really bring it to another level where your life really will be a worry-free life. Now, who doesn't want that? But in order to do that, it takes a little bit of work. The work is that you have to implement not only the, 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 the topics that we're going to speak about, anything that you learn about in Munah, anything you learn about, implement it. You hear about an organization that's amazing. You have the ability to go and give give them. It's amazing. I, by the way, I don't get anything from it. I, well, spiritually, I do. Not physically. In this, in this world. But like when you think about it, it, not only that you should give, try to get other people to give. I, I, mean, I can guarantee you this thing is going to be huge. It's going to be big. You want to be, when something gets big, do you want to go and regret it? Afterwards, be like, well, I could have been the part of this. I could have, you know, been a part of Apple and Microsoft and Google, you know, so long ago. Or that they, I could have been part of Daily Given. I could have been a part of Torah Anytime. Like, you, there's things that are going to blow up in the next few years. And I'm telling you, this is, in my opinion, this is some, one of the things that are going to blow up. Join them, help them, be a part of, of something greater than yourself. Be a part of something that helps the Jewish nation in all different aspects. Not just what you know, not just what you think is important, but all different aspects. With that, we'll open up to any questions. Yes. So if you're asking how this organization chooses... They have a team of rabbinical advisors. If you go to the website, they have a team. They ha- they, I was speaking to the one who started it, um, and, he, and I was speaking about a certain organization. He, the, you know how much list they have of people, organizations that ran over to them, and they, needed, they want to be part of this organization, you know, because they're basically getting money. So they want to be part of that organization. So um, you, have to, you have to go and speak to them. You have to see if you get a part of it. I know right now they're a little bit on a hold. They have a long list of people that, that, that is on the list, but they're slowly building up their, their every day. They're giving to different organizations. To you know, to do how to get on it, then you go and speak to them. Go to www.dailygiving.org. That is dailygiving.org. Everybody needs funds. 
but you could recommend what you think they need funds and then see what happens. I don't know. I, I, I don't run the organization. I'm not part, you know, the, what I am part of it is only recommending saying that it's an amazing organization. I know, I know, I know them. I know, I, they're amazing people. So speak to them. If you want to go, reach out to them. Get, get, and if they don't put you on the list, at least put them on the line. Maybe they'll put you on the, you know, there's a, there's a long list, but the, definitely organization to be involved in from whichever angle you could be from. Yes, 100% Marcel. Yes. Net. Marcel is from your net, not from your gross. So if somebody goes and has a business, and their business made a profit of, let's say, $2,000, uh, let's say the business made a profit of $3,000 that month, but they had to pay $1,000 in the workers or rent or whatever it is, meaning that they netted into their pocket $2,000, then Marcel is 10% of that, so it will be $200 of that. So it'll be out of your net, not out of your growth. Any other questions? Yes. Yes. Uh, what, is there a difference between uh, Nisayan and the Kaparos you mentioned? Ooh, good question. Is there a difference between Nisayan and Kaparos? So, yes and no, depending on what it is that you're dealing with. So when you have a test, a test can go and help you grow in the positive. And again, I'm speaking very vague because we're speaking very hypothetical. So a test could help you in the positive. So let's say you're on level 80 and then you have a test. So now you're able to pass to like 81 or 82 or 83. When you have a suffering, that suffering could cleanse your back end of your issues. But at the same point in time, depending on how you react, every suffering is an Isayan. Every suffering is a Kapara. So like, they're really interchangeable and it really depends on how you relate to it. So if you have a suffering, you could, that is really a test also. So like, now you, not only can you cleanse the back end, but you could also move up a few steps depending on how, so you could, the way that, I'm trying to make it very clear, like let's say you have a certain suffering, so you go through that suffering and it makes a Kapara. But also how you react to that suffering could raise you another level. So you understand how they could work interrelated. They're really, really strongly connected. So that is a long discussion. But often we want to speak about what happens. And the question is an amazing question. I'm not going to be able to answer it now because it's a long, like, long, long, what happens if someone messes up in their own life? Is that a test? Is that a kapara? Is that an atonement? That's an excellent question. And I, I don't want to answer it because it's going to take me a really long time and it's, and it's, I, I want to answer correctly. So Bizarre Hashem, it's in a class in, you know, in itself to, to discuss about that. Um, yes and no, depending on a lot of factors. Yes. So when, when let's say you go and you're trying to do something good and you see that bad constantly happens to you. So first of all, I do have a few classes on it that I would recommend. I go through, through quite a few details on how do we understand why bad things happen to good people. Right, so not, so the way that it works is, right, yeah, yeah, right. I think I understand what you're saying. So when, when you're doing, the concept is that if you follow God, you're not going to lose out. However, that 
it's never, or I shouldn't say never, it's not always so outforwardly simply understood that, okay, so you decide you're going to come to a Torah class and now everything's going to work well for you, like all of a sudden. Like, it doesn't always work out, you know, like that it, you could see it. Like, sometimes, yes, you have a guy that goes, it's, yeah, at the end game, it's going to be for your benefit. How and when will we'll see that? Sometimes you see that immediately. Sometimes you see that after a few years. And sometimes you only see that after 120. But the concept is, with 100% validity, is that if you've listened to God, you don't lose out. When you see that you don't lose out, that's a question. You have people that go, became religious, and then they lost their business. How is that for their bad? Again, we're not God. But what we do know is that if you do follow God's law, you do listen to that, you're not going to lose out. It might be in a day. It might be... That instant, it might be in a year, it might be, again, after 120. Yes? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Does what apply by females? I say lecharav. If you're not married, then yeah. And if you're in a, if, let's say, a balchuva situation, then most definitely. I say lecharav. Do you have to go make yourself a rabbi? So if you're married, the husband really should be the one that should be... I mean, there's nothing wrong with a woman having a rough... You know, also to ask Shalas to. I, I think that's very important as well. But um, if, but especially if, let's say, you know, many situations, you have people that come from a non-religious background, and they become religious, they absolutely need a rabbi. How are they going to know and know what to do? So absolutely also applies to females in certain situations. And in certain situations, it's really on the husband's, you know... Um, How to choose a rabbi is a whole long discussion. Uh, has a share in it. Oh yeah, had a, there you go. Rabbi Tahana has a share. I'll tell you like this. What's, what's very important, I always strongly recommend, for halachic questions, there is an unbelievable rabbi by the name of Rabbi Shai Tahan. And he has WhatsApp groups. Yes. I have never met a rabbi that you're able to go and he has a WhatsApp specifically for halachot. A woman separate, man separate. So um, if you want to be a part of that, you can reach out to me privately and I could go and, and, and set you up for that. He's a huge, a huge rabbi in, you know, like Alachot, top, top. And he's going to go and he's be able to give you whatever it is that you need to. And it's, un, and you know, it's unbelievable. So you have some people that have, let's say, particular, some people like joining just to read the chats. Because it's interesting questions, and they see the answers and be like, "Oh, they learn just from the halachot. They're going back and forth." Yeah, exactly. There's many halachot. You either, most of the time you you see that you people that they think that they're doing, they're not allowed to do something. Really, you're allowed to do it. They just never know. They never ask. And sometimes they're doing something which is wrong, which is like what you said, and they're really not supposed to be doing it. So, like again, it's very very important how to choose a rabbi. Long discussion: how to choose a rabbi. You have to do good research and make sure that you're following. Chauvinistic. Yeah, and she says there's nothing, and it's all written by man, and that's it. And uh, send it to me. I'll take care of her. I have a guy. No, I'm kidding. Um, I have a whole topics on this. Um, I, 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 actually, I, I saw all your lectures. I, I have a big. Screen. That didn't help. 
she, you didn't have to give me that last bit of information. She, she, she comes, you know, like, uh, she'll listen. I like this guy. He talks fast, and I like what she But she's still in a, unconvincible. I mean, I, I mean, I don't understand. I said, do you want to issue? I, I never went to issue in my life. Yeah, it's, it happens. I, I mean, and I realized there's, she says, Mom, it's all bullshit. If you're so gullible, then it's up to you. That's what she told me. Let me speak to her. Whenever it is. No, no, I'm serious. I'm not, I'm not joking. I'm like, we'll have a discussion. I'll argue with her, I'll debate with her, whatever it is that she wants it. Like, I'll convince her. Whatever it is, we'll work it out. If she's interested in talking, she might just want in her mind to say that it doesn't exist because then she wants to live her life. But if she's really searching and she really wants it, besimcha. I'll sit with her and I'll talk with her. We could do it part of the class. We do it privately. Most people like doing it privately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How? Either. Reach out either by email or phone or whatever. We have to schedule all time, and these these conversations take a long time. So. I'll say very simple. Next week, whenever it is that I'm here next time, bring her in. Afterwards, we'll turn off the camera. We'll have the discussion with her. Whenever it is that she wants, whatever it is, I'm I'm here in person. In person, or I could do it over the phone. Again, if she wants to go and, and ask questions, then I'm willing to answer. If she's just looking for excuses to get out, then I can't answer excuses. I can answer questions. So if she's willing, we'll have a discussion. Bring her. Okay? Any other questions? No? Okay. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.